Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Risk! Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes that we're calling Classic Risk Singles. Each of these episodes features just one story from our earlier years. If you're new to Risk, you should know that the podcast can be very uncensored. This week, a story by Laurel Holland that she first shared on the podcast in July of 2012. Here's Laurel now with a story we call Spindrift. My father was born in the mountains. Technically, he came from a middle-class East Coast family, but his heart was in the mountains and it was a love unparalleled to almost anything else in his life. In the early to late 70s, he spent a lot of time in Canada. That was sort of where he became a man. He learned to climb there, he met many of his best friends there, um, and in 1989, those mountains called him back. All of my memories of my father are are very dear, and he and I were, were buddies through and through. Not all of them are pleasant memories. I remember him having a terrible temper, and there were times when I made him absolutely furious. I remember once I tattled on him to my mother because he had taken me climbing on a rock, at a rock quarry, and um, of course, no one was allowed to climb there, but of course he thought it was pretty cool to take this little girl up. 
and teach her how to climb. And I was, of course, wearing inappropriate shoe wear, a lesson of my life. <laughs> I was wearing these purple <laughs> Velcro sneakers with a Care Bear strap. And he, of course, didn't rope me up to anything. It's just sort of free climbing. And I lose my shoe. My shoe falls off. So instead of bringing me down to the bottom, he leaves me hanging there on the ledge while he goes down and gets my shoe. And of course, I was kind of tickled by this, but I also thought, you know, I'm going to go home and tell mom about this because I love when she gets a little mad at him because she's so funny when she gets mad. I, I remember thinking this. And I told my mother, and she was so furious with him. They got into a terrible, terrible fight. And I like felt so, so guilty for having, I guess, <laughs> reneged on his trust a little. No, but my father and I were very, very close. Uh, he and I loved listening to the music of Ry Cooter. One of the albums that we listened to all the time was Get Rhythm. And I remember being in our living room in Maine, and he was wearing this blue bathrobe that my mother had given him for Christmas. And he blasted this song, Get Rhythm, and we were just dancing and having the greatest time. And there was this patch of sunshine on the carpet that I just remember trying to step on and like playing with this patch of sunlight, having such an amazing time with him. And just wanting to savor that moment even then as a child. But my father was always going away. He, he spent almost every weekend climbing and the memories that I have of him while they're incredibly vivid are also pocked with the memories of not being with him and being with my mother and spending lonely weekends together, the two of us. And granted, my mother and I have always been close, but I do remember that absence. In April of 1989, he and his climbing partner, Chris, went to the Columbia Icefields. They had spent, I believe, about five days climbing in and around the area and were at odds often. There was tension between the two of them. Chris was about five years younger than my father and my father was suffering from early onset arthritis. He was told by his rheumatologist that he had about maybe five to ten years before he would be completely debilitated and so he felt like he really had to sort of seize the day and take advantage of what time he had left and he often went to extremes in order to do so and so in the days preceding this climb up slipstream he and Chris were really pushing the envelope in every climb that they made they were not roping up they were essentially soloing together so on April 3rd 1989 my father and Chris attempted to make an assault up slipstream Slipstream is a 3,000-foot frozen waterfall that's located along the eastern face of Mount Snowdome in Jasper National Park, Alberta, Canada. And the first time it was climbed in 1979, um, it took the two men who, who initially climbed it three days to get to the top um, because it's literally 3,000 feet of frozen ice. And it's incredibly dangerous because at the very top, People don't understand that the top of Snowdome is a glacier and there are these huge overhangs and cerics that break off at intermittent levels, particularly when it starts storming and when the wind is blowing. Um, it's incredibly dangerous because a lot of ice and snow can fall down on you and it can kill you instantly. But my father had become obsessed with this route. It was the mark of extreme climbing. That was the mark of him being able to achieve something that he wasn't sure that he totally could. and. He had this manic 
I guess, vision of needing to achieve that because if he could just get to the top of that, everything would be great. And that's how he often looked at life. It was like, if I only just had this one more thing, if I could only just get to the top of this mountain, or if I only could just perfect this song on my guitar, um, everything about him was obsessive compulsive. Um, and in fact, he had actually been diagnosed with a very severe case of manic depression prior to the trip to Slipstream. I remember when I was little, when I was four, actually, my grandparents came to visit us. Um, we were living in Maine at the time, and my father stayed up for two days straight, taking apart his silver Scirocco in the garage and putting back together the, all of the parts of the engine. It was like he just like he always had to be working with his hands and doing something. It was as if he needed to be manic in order to stave off the effects of the depression. So they they got to the bottom, they geared up. It was a beautiful morning, so they got to the top without incident, I think by 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and it was the best climb the two of them had ever done together or separately. It was like this huge high. Of course, my father, who had spent so much of his youth in the Rockies, this was a huge coup for him. And it's like you can see the, the Valley of the Ten Peaks, I think, from the south, and you can see Mount Temple and all of these places that he had climbed in the past, and it was like being with old friends, you know. So they had lunch and started packing up their gear and were discussing how to descend when the, an afternoon storm rolled in. And um, the weather was really setting in quickly, as it does in the mountains. I mean, it's so rapid. The two of them had established a precedent in the prior days uh, of not roping up together because roping up in a descent can take an incredibly long time to get down and when you need to get off the mountain fast it's not always in your best interest to rope up um, but they were not in agreement about that and they really didn't know each other well enough uh, they'd maybe met like a month or two before so they didn't know each other well enough to know when to push back a little and so they chose not to rope up in the descent but the thing is, when you're on a glacier, you can't really see it. I've never been to the top of Snowdome before, but from what people tell me, the surface, usually the light is so flat, it's so monochromatic that you can't really see the surface of the snow. But when the light hits it at the right angle, you can see all the pockmarks from where there have been ice bridges formed over crevasses. So you're basically playing Russian roulette if you don't rope up. You can step through something like that and be gone. And if you're not roped up, you have no leverage. There's no lifeline. So as the weather got worse, my father approached the lip of the massif in search of the descent gully. And apparently, Chris had been packing up his things. He turned into the, like, the blinding whiteness, and there was no one there. And so he tried to get down, but the weather was too terrible, and he knew if he tried to get down by himself, he'd die. So he was up at the top of Snowdome for three hours, waiting for the other team on the route that day to get to the top. They, uh, they all got to the bottom. The fall happened on April 3rd. They got to the bottom by the morning of April 4th, and then attempted a search and rescue attempt, but the weather was so terrible they had to put it on hold. Meanwhile, back in Maine, um, so this was April 4th, I remember waking up that morning. My mom and I always slept in my parents' bed when my father was away. 
And I remember waking up really early, early that morning, and my mom was still sleeping, and I could see the sun breaking on the horizon. And I remember watching the shadows on the ceiling shift and wondering about my dad in the mountains. And I remember wondering what he was going to bring back for me when he came home. And I really, I, I thought about it, and I was like, I wonder if he misses me. And that was about six weeks before I was about to turn six. And that was a really exciting, like, I was very excited to turn six. And then that night, my mom was preparing dinner, and the phone rang. And she went to answer it. I remember I was up at the counter coloring, and nobody was on the other line. And so she, she was like, okay, well, that's weird. And she hung up the phone and went back to making dinner. And about maybe like 45 minutes or an hour later the phone rang again and by this time we were sitting down to eat and she went to answer the phone and again there like there was this click and then no answer she told me later she thought you know maybe he has a bad connection maybe is this bill trying to call and of course she'd been concerned the day before because he hadn't called and checked in and it was sort of like, well, well, but he does this sort of thing sometimes, so she didn't know what to think about it. So it's just a little strange. So we cleaned up and I had my bath and we were going back upstairs to go to sleep and uh, she was reading me a bedtime story. I remember it was Blueberries for Sal. And we were in the middle of the story and there was a knock on our front door. And... <laughs> I'll never, I'll never forget that, um, that feeling. You know in that moment that something is wrong when you can feel your mother begin to tense in fear. You know that something has happened. And she looked at me and she said, Laurel, stay put. And she turned out the light. And she went to answer the door. And when she did it was uh, it was three of our closest friends um, who had come to deliver the news and apparently what had happened was Chris had tried to call earlier in the evening but when he heard my mom's voice on the phone he couldn't tell her and I could hear these voices downstairs in the front hall and I was so afraid. She had told me to stay put, but I was so afraid of what was going on that I crept downstairs. And I saw her in the front hall, just sort of surrounded by these th three of our d very dear friends, and her face was in her hands. And I just said, Mommy, what's wrong? And she looked up at me and she said, Your father's not coming home, Laurel. It's the kind of thing you'd never forget. <laughs> and so after that, it was it's kind of a blur. The next thing I really remember was um, the day of the service, seeing all of these people sitting in the church, and I knew that they had all come for this. And I laughed. I, I remember laughing. I felt so like self-conscious and so aware that everyone was feeling sorry for me and I hated when people felt sorry for me I hated that pity and I hated um, being condescended to even as a child I, re I remember knowing what that felt like to be condescended to I think 
And I just remember covering my mouth because I knew it was so inappropriate to be laughing, but that I couldn't, I couldn't help it because it was so strange. And just like that, he was gone. There was no more father. It was like there were framed photographs and that was it. And I remember thinking even then, being fearful because, I mean, we certainly didn't have a camcorder or anything, so there was no recording of him. There was no video or tape or anything, and I was so afraid I would lose the memory of his voice. I remember Mommy and, and me clinging to each other. I remember that spring and that summer being incredibly lonely. I remember one incident. It must have been maybe a I don't know, maybe in June of that year. It was after all of the, the cards and prepared meals and the, the bouquets, sun and sympathy, sort of, they be, all began to wane. And we'd had dinner, um, and I could tell my mom was really sad because she didn't want to color with me before dinner time. She didn't want to play dominoes. It was just like she was really reserved, and I thought, you know, i got to do something to make her laugh. I dragged one of the counter stools from the kitchen up to, we had this plastic yellow telephone in the kitchen. And there she was scrubbing the dishes at the sink. And I sort of mischievously looked over at her and I picked up the phone and I said, hello God, I'd like to speak to my daddy please. And I did it because I thought it would make her laugh. And instead she turned to the sink and she just dissolved in tears and I had never seen my mother cry before not like this and she just kept saying Bill oh Bill and I didn't know what to do I just stood there on the stool for God knows how long and I, I finally went to her and I, I took her by the hand and I led her around the corner and sat her down and I crawled into her lap and I threw my arms around her neck and I said I'm sorry I made you cry mommy I don't know why I remember this but I as I was hugging her and I was looking at the wall behind her and there was an electrical outlet along the baseboard and a few months prior to that I had taken my mother's keys and thought it would be really fun to play a pretend game of driver and I was probably about three seconds from plugging the keys into the electrical outlet when my father came around the corner and caught me and he grabbed me by the arm and he said oh my god don't do that. Do you want to die? He just said it over and over. Do you want to die? Do you want to die? And I just thought, oh my God. I, oh, well, maybe that would be better than dealing with this. But I remember that moment of like hugging my mother and looking at the electrical outlet. And I wondered what death felt like. In spite of what we had been told and what was most likely the truth, there was a lot of question as to what exactly happened at the top of Slipstream on the day my father disappeared. Um, I think my mom always found it was odd that Chris could never really approach us. The first time we ever met him was at the service. Uh, and he was very reticent to talk about the details of the climb in the fall. And I can certainly empathize with the trauma associated with losing someone and being held responsible, but if it happens on your clock, you gotta be accountable for it. In, in the months before my father's fall, he had really been struggling with a lot of things personally, and he had been seeing a psychiatrist for 
a while, but he wasn't taking medication, and I think he was trying to deal with it on his own. And he was fighting the onset of age. Um, he was 39 at the time, so he was—I mean, he was—he wasn't old by any stretch of the imagination. But for a climber, you know, you just start feeling the effects of that, especially when you're exposed to the elements in the way he was constantly. And actually, a couple of months prior to the climb up slipstream, um, he had. <sighs> He had fallen in love with someone at work, and he had made a list of comparisons between her and my mother that my mother found in his briefcase when she was looking for a bill. And apparently the woman had rejected him, and it was just a little odd that after that was when he really started becoming obsessed with Slipstream. He bought books about it, he did research on it, he talked to his many climbers, as he could, who had already been on the route. And it was almost like this weird transference of emotion or of obsession or, or whatever it was that this woman didn't want him. And I, I think truly it was more less than it was love, but there was some sort of transference there. So there were all of these weird things that kind of made you wonder because there's no body. Did he stage it? Did he plan to go away? Was he climbing with somebody he didn't know very well because he could convince him that he could, I don't know, pay him off? Or I mean, I, God knows you don't even want to think that someone you love would be capable of doing something like that. And certainly the record never indicated that he was that kind of a person. But the mind's ability to wander and wonder can create these fantastical but possible situations that you at attach yourself to. I remember my mom and I were we were driving in his Scirocco, which of course never worked because he had tried to take it apart that one time. We were driving in the countryside and we came up behind this bicyclist and he peeled off onto a dirt road to the right and pedaled out of sight and my mom floored the brake so hard that she spelled the car and she just said, that was your father. And we just sat there, the two of us. But it was like she was convinced in some way that he was out there that he was still alive or that he hadn't fallen. And because my mother and I were so close, we sort of, I think, both convinced ourselves that, yes, this is the story, this is the story we're telling to people, you know, that he fell and it's unfortunate. And yes, his body was never found, but it, I think she and I both really believed he was out there someplace. Maybe he was in the Himalaya as a climbing guide and had escaped his domestic responsibilities. We didn't know. <laughs> the development of that myth in my life, of the myth that, yes, you're told one thing, but really it's this other story. I basically created a mountain out of this myth. And really, I mean, I really believed as I got older that my father was out there. And I think I've, I've been very fortunate to have the life that I've had. Um, I certainly, I had a wonderful education and I've gotten to do some incredible things in my life and I am so grateful, but a lot of my drive was fueled by this intensity of proving to him whenever he did come back that he was going to be fucking sorry he left. And in college, actually, it got to such a point that I would Google him and try to find him on the internet. I remember like spending hours, you know, going through like the 20th page of Google search results trying to find like Himalaya Sherpa guide Bill Holland 
and was so sure that I would find him someplace. And I never found him, but I never stopped looking for him. And I think that that tendency to create a myth about something that wasn't real or tangible, this tendency almost to like over-idealize a situation has bled into almost every facet of my life. And I, I basically have existed in this sort of like this state my entire life. I think it's really affected um, how I view the world. So two years ago, I'm in the middle of this god-awful production at uh, PS122, and I'm working for this uh, former film critic, Judith Christ, and I'm like, I, what am I doing with my life? Did I really spend four years of school to go through this? Am, am I suffering for my art? Is, is this what suffering for my art is? And if that's what suffering for my art is, I don't know if I want to be an artist. And I was just really having a rough time. And I, I went to Chelsea Market to buy groceries. I had rehearsal that night, and I was really dreading rehearsal. And my phone rings, and my mom and I had spoken earlier that day, and I thought, fuck. She knows that I bought a pair of shoes with her credit card, and I thought she was calling to berate me on the phone. So when I answered the phone, I was kind of abrupt with her. I said, hey, Mom, what's up? I'm buying groceries right now, and I have rehearsal in a half an hour. What's up? She goes, um, uh, Laurel, are, uh, are, are you sitting down? And I said, no, I'm buying groceries. Is everything okay? And she goes, no, well, I, no, why don't I just, why don't I call you back when you're at home? And I said, mom, hey, what's up? Is everything okay? And she didn't respond. And I started to panic thinking, God, she has cancer. God, somebody's died. Like, what the fuck has happened? And she goes, Laurel, they found your father. And in between the time, that like space of silence and the time she told me the logistics of his discovery, I wasn't sure if she meant if he was alive or dead. What they think happened was that he fell into a crevasse at the top of Snowdome and basically became part of the mountain. And as the glacier receded over the past 20 years because of global warming, he traveled almost a mile from the initial site of his fall, and two young kids were hiking at the base of Snowdome in the summertime on their day off, and they found him. And he, because he had been in, surrounded by snow and ice for 20 years, he was, like, preserved. So his, his jacket, his yellow jacket, and his pants and his boots were still intact. His hair was still intact. All of his gear was within like a 200-foot radius. It was all there. And I think that that, it was like a breaking point for me in my life. That was like the first time that I, I had descended from a myth that I had created in my life. And I think that that's the first time that I really accepted that he was gone. Um, and certainly the first time I really began to grieve for real but there's a great amount of guilt I felt associated with that for blaming him for going away, for being the kind of person who might desert me. So after this play that I was in, um, my mom and I met in Edmonton because they had to figure out what to do with the body. Um, and of course, friends and family just kept saying, it's not a good idea, don't do it, he's not going to look the same. And I, I mean, I knew he's not going to look the same. He's been in the elements for 21 years, but we both really needed to see him. They were holding him at a funeral home in Edmonton. We met with the funeral director and conferred all of the biographical information, and she led us 
into this examination room. And of course, it's very sterile, but they, it was very sweet. They had laid him on his back and, and put a baby blue hospital sheet halfway over him and laid a red rose by his side. And she, she led us into the room and she said, take your time. And um, Mom and I approached. And even though it had been so long and he had spent so much time alone, I still recognized him. His mustache was still intact. His teeth were still intact. I recognized the shape of his mouth. And that was, that was the mouth that told me stories when I was little that sang to me when I couldn't sleep. And it was the most peaceful coming to terms that I have ever experienced to know that the story was real. That is all for this week's Classic Risk Singles episode. Now, don't miss out on our regular full-length episodes. There's a brand new one every Tuesday. And everything you might want to know about us is at risk-show.com.